Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director here in Boston Private. Today we have a special program focused on space and how family offices are looking at investments in the commercial space industry. I'm joined by three accomplished professionals who have specialized in this industry from a variety of angles. A family office principal, a commercial space executive, um, and a former astronaut who piloted the Space Shuttle Endeavor. I'm really looking forward to today's uh, discussion. Today we'll uh, discuss several areas, including the dynamics of the commercial space market, what's driving investment in this industry, subsectors that are taking off, and talk about how family offices are approaching the space industry. So let's get underway with some brief introductions. First, I'm joined by Lisa Rich, founder of Explore and Hemisphere Ventures. Lisa, give us a quick snapshot of your background. Sure, Edward, thanks for, for asking. I am a founder of Hemisphere Ventures, which is a family office that was founded in 2014 and evolved into a venture firm around 2017. We had uh, invested in over 200 companies by that time and started co-investing and offering syndicates and having a fund. Uh, And we have uh, quite a number of LPs. And separately, I run Explore, which is a deep space exploration company. We are uh, planning missions to the moon, Mars, Venus, and beyond to accelerate our knowledge of uh, science and accelerate missions to these deep space destinations to bring data back for the benefit of humanity. Great. Thanks, Lisa. My next guest is Terry Wirtz, head of 39 Alpha Productions and former NASA astronaut. Uh, Terry, give us an overview of your experience. Well, my uh, space experience started off in the Air Force. I was a fighter pilot, test pilot, and spent 16 years at NASA. I uh, flew a couple of space missions and spent about seven months in space. Uh, since I left NASA a few years ago, I've been working with a couple of different companies, uh, startups, and a venture capital kind of role. Um, there's a, a couple of really exciting aerospace companies I'm working with. And I've also got my second half of my life is involved in TV and film. So I'm working on a few different projects. I actually just turned in a, a short film today. So that's kind of my uh, my other half of my life. Fantastic. Thanks, Terry. And our third panelist is Amir Blockman, uh, Chief Business Officer of Axiom Space. Uh, Amir, give us a, some insight into your professional background. Thanks, Eddie. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Lisa and Terry. Um, my operational training and mission orientation uh, were really forged during my service as an Air Force instructor. Uh, I then transitioned to a 20-year career in investment finance and operations. I co-managed the broker services division at Franklin Templeton, uh, then during the dot-coms as an operations executive at a number of firms, including the Wedding Channel. I then grew and took a boutique pharmaceutical firm public and followed that by merging my aerospace and investment backgrounds by acquiring part of the Space Angels Network. Um, And in that capacity, I supported investments in lunar landers, satellites, ground networks, and other space technologies. And then in 2015, I met Mike Zuffredini, who at the time was head of NASA's International Space Station program. Uh, Mike and his partner, Dr. Cam Jafarian, started Axiom Space in 2016, at which point I joined them as their first employee. Uh, We've since grown Axiom Space into the world's leading commercial space station company. 
our first mission to the International Space Station with a crew of four astronauts is scheduled to launch in 15 months. And the first modules of our new space station are now under construction and we'll launch them to orbit in 2024. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, let's get started with uh, some questions. Lisa, investing in space uh, for private individuals has really surged uh, in scope and size uh, over the last decade. What's driving this and, and how did we get to this point? Well, space investing has surged in the past decade. Um, there's been a transition from private investors that we all have heard about, the big names of Richard Branson and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos investing in space privately and starting a movement in commercial space exploration. So that had not uh, previously existed. It was really government uh, agencies building spacecraft and sending missions to space and suddenly there was this idea that we could have uh, commercial companies uh, going to space. So when that happened, there really wasn't an opportunity um, other than for private investors to join them um, maybe early on and then the, the VCs got involved, um, the bigger funds got involved in as well companies that were kind of born out of that, what I would call space 1.0 companies. And so as venture firms invested in companies um, that were doing maybe planet that's imaging the earth with cameras uh, that are satellites that are uh, uh, orbiting the earth and taking images, um, more money was, was flowing into space uh, for the opportunity of uh, getting imagery that could um, then produce data that's valuable to different industries. So um, a lot of companies were invested uh, in by venture firms at that time, but then we had uh, some fallout and there were companies that failed and the money that was put in didn't really have the proof points that were needed and we didn't have a lot of companies going public. So at this point, we're now at what I would call the space 2.0 companies, which is new crops of emerging companies in the, what we call the new space sector, uh, companies that have been able to um, build businesses that can scale at maybe some of them a lower capex, so lower cost uh, to develop them. But those are the companies that uh, we invest in today, and they have these great opportunities for growth, um, which is driven uh, by government investing in emerging space technologies, which is very exciting. So for family offices to invest in the space sector, they have a lot of power right now because they have access to fantastic deal flow. And the venture firms are, that have invested previously are still waiting for some of their investments to prove themselves. So they're not necessarily investing in the new crop of space companies that I'm calling kind of space 2.0. So it's a time where I think private investors are very empowered to have access to fantastic opportunities in the space sector. Thanks, Lisa, that's a helpful background. Uh, Amir, maybe you can give us some sizing information of what the, what the market looks like uh, for the commercial space industry and, and how is it changing? Uh, on the backdrop of what Lisa uh, provided us in the last couple of years. 
Sure. And first, it's important to understand what the space industry is, right? Some people have a deep understanding of its various subsectors, and some people are not yet sure of are they investing in a 2010 a Space Odyssey or in a little, transist little transistor. So just to put um, some shape around it, about three-quarters of the space industry is made up of the satellite industry and about a quarter of it is made up of human spaceflight and government spending. And of course, there's some overlap on the government spending side, but generally that's what it is, three-quarter satellite, one-quarter human spaceflight and government. Combined, the industry today is somewhere between 380 and $400 billion in disclosed revenue. That is not knowing um, the, uh, the uh, hidden military spending from around the world. And not hidden in a nefarious way, hidden in that it's folded into budgets and, and that are not necessarily disclosed to people who are writing the space reports. Um, the satellite industry, that three-quarter portion, is primarily made up of broadcast and navigation services. So television, GPS, things like that. And secondarily, of the manufacturing and ground services that support those services. So Bryce Space, Space Fund, uh, Satellite Industry Association have great information that's public on this, and I recommend investors that are getting into the realm read the reports. Um, the human spaceflight and government spending, which makes up a quarter of, of that $400 billion space industry, is made up about 25% NASA spending and the rest other governments and commercial users. And in terms of the main changes we're seeing in the industry, right now it's the recognition of human spaceflight and exploration at the least crowded subsectors with the highest growth potential. So companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, Axiom, Explore, Intuitive Machines, and Virgin Galactic are the leaders in that area. And they've been getting a lot of attention because unlike the uh, three quarters that I mentioned, which is uh, broadcast and navigation, these are um, newer sectors that are not yet inundated. So there's still quite a bit of opportunity for growth. Um, the main changes that we're seeing though in the satellite arena is enabled by smaller computation, smaller optics and communications technologies. And when you have less mass to get to orbit, it enables myriad startups to attack the challenges that in the past could only be addressed by giants such as Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, because now you can build a satellite that is the size of a shoebox and it will do what satellites 15, 20 years ago had to weigh in, in the uh, tons of orbit to mass. And what that ha makes happen is that business cases become enabled. So if somebody wants to send up a satellite that is less expensive to manufacture and serves a smaller niche of revenue, it allows more and more startups. So we're seeing uh, constellations of CubeSats. Uh, we're seeing many individual CubeSats and small sats, and uh, they're vying for a lot of the larger revenue streams that some of the bigger satellite companies uh, we're doing in the past. And that, of course, opens up opportunities for investors because it makes those small companies now accessible to a broader swath of investors. Thanks, Amir. Uh, Terry, uh, on the backdrop of some, a lot of government budgets around the world are, are feeling some stress. And uh, you know, there's certainly the public and private partnership that exists that Lisa and Amir mentioned uh, earlier. Do you think that uh, private investing in space has the momentum to, to continue to increase and, and, and why or why not? 
Um, well, I think it does, but in, in a smart way and not across the board way. Uh, like you mentioned, the public-private partnership is very important. Um, the, the reality is government spending is not going to be going up with this massive debt that we're incurring for COVID. You know, there's just not going to be huge amounts of dollars for NASA to spend. So um, things that are going to be innovative that are going to happen in space are going to have to come largely from the private sector. Um, and, and when you say space, it's such a big, uh, you know, there's a lot of sub components of space for sure. Like Amir was just talking about the launch industry is interesting and that's what's exciting, but it's only a few percent of that $400 billion. And the loss, the launch industry has been very crowded, maybe five or 10 years ago, that was the place to be. Um, but companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and Relativity and maybe one or two others, um, I think have kind of filled up that space, if you will. Um, but there's other aspects, um, I think, like applications. You know, once you're in space, what can you do with it? And there's a lot of imaging satellites up there. There's a lot of uh, broadband, uh, you know, internet type of satellites. And so there's things that you can do with um, the satellites that are really interesting. And that's where I think a lot of the future development as the hardware becomes commoditized, kind of like a laptop is a commodity, um, but it's the software uh, that comes out of it that's really important. When you talk about the, you know, two, three fourths or 80% of that $400 billion pie is just uh, satellite communications and, and navigation. Um, the, the real value comes in the content on those satellites and not in the satellites themselves. And so, I think in the same way, I think private uh, investment in applications of space is going to be a really important uh, part of the future. Yeah, Eddie, I just thought I'd circle back on that comment that Terry was making about how our government spends money on the space industry and uh, the NASA budgets. They are actually very large and expanding. Um, and some things I can cite on that regarding their spend uh, with the CLIPS program, which stands for Commercial Lunar Payload Services. The CLIPS program was established to spend $2.6 billion over a 10-year period, specifically on commercial lunar payloads. And in that effect, uh, to date, they have spent um, money on landers so intuitive machines and astrobotic each have received about 80 million dollars in landers and then last year they put money toward um, spacex and blue and dianetics uh, together got about a billion dollars to do human landers so that's uh the clips program and separately they have dollars that they're spending um beyond this we have um the Science Mission Directorate, which has a lunar budget request in fiscal year 2020 of about 210 million, and 2021 it's going to expand to maybe $450 million. So there certainly is an interest of the government in accelerating our capabilities uh, for trips to the moon and what can we achieve there with landers. And then we want to expand this out as well for orbiters. And that call hasn't happened yet, but that's uh, in the works. So for commercial companies like 
uh, explore like Axiom, they're going to be the beneficiaries of dollars being put into these expansion plans uh, because our government wants to enable commercial. So as Amir has discussed, the, the money being uh, provided for their development of the module that will attach to the ISS, um, that's enabling commercial. And of course, earlier this year, we already saw the uh, Dragon crew where we had our um, resurrection of our program with SpaceX now sending human crew to the ISS. So these are commercial capabilities that uh, our, our government is supporting and which the entire space industry will benefit from. You know, Amir, with that backdrop, do you think that there are some fundamental underpinnings uh, that, that point uh, space as being something as a, a permanent and significant sector for, you know, either private individuals or or others to invest in? Yeah, space investment is growing because of the technological changes that I mentioned earlier, uh, not because of a trending interest. So launch is less expensive thanks to reusable rockets from SpaceX and uh, soon from other companies. Uh, as I mentioned, computers take less mass to orbit, so there's more capability on orbit and more business cases that can become profitable. Uh, and there's also an increasing number of transactions, as Lisa mentioned, showing that uh, there are exits and uh, and profits in the sector. Um, this is kind of a good segue from what Terry was talking about, that it's not the satellites themselves anymore that um, that are the important piece of technology, but really what comes out of them. So data, um, and maybe we'll talk a little bit later on about what, uh, what some of those uses of that data is. Great. So, uh, Lisa, in terms of areas uh, of the commercial space industry, it's very broad, uh, as, as folks have discussed already. What areas are attracting, uh, you know, the most amount of investment? Where are some really interesting emerging areas uh, within this industry? Sure, sure. Thank you. And I, I think I'd like to add to the comment, too, about why the, the acceleration of momentum in investing and what's exciting and why why we're driven to, to invest in this arena. Um, as Amir is pointing out, you know, you've got communication and observation have traditionally been the areas that were open to investment. And that will continue, um, especially in the observation area. There's a lot of development for imaging companies, um, companies with the ability to do hyperspectral imaging and uh, high definition, high resolution images of the Earth. So Earth observation is a huge uh, market and it is spawning analytics companies, uh, as, but obviously you have to get high quality images in order to have great data to analyze. So there are companies with, for example, uh, Umbra is one of our companies that is able to image um, with a synthetic aperture radar at a quarter meter resolution. And what that means is that from space, you can take an image of the Earth and see elevation data, like the height of a curb. You can get vibration data from the antenna that can let you know if um, a power station is on or off. You can get a sense of oil moving through a pipeline and the rate that it's moving through a pipeline. This is really valuable data for a number of customers. Um, and 
so that this acceleration is, um, you know, of investment investment is also because a company that can scale and produce imagery with a satellite that is the size of it, you know, the base of it is the cost of it is under five million dollars, where the same satellite used to be 450 million minimum. Um, that to get high quality data from something at such a low cost um, has great value and is a great investment opportunity. And then, you know, opening up for uh, exploration, we look at data that we'll bring back from space and what's valuable. Um, we have an interest in space weather. So we have earth weather as well as space weather. But if we could start with earth weather, there's a company, Planet IQ, and they're working on getting weather data from uh, uh, radio occultation capability, which is the ability to read uh, precipitation in the, uh, from the Earth to the ionosphere. And it allows us to have um, weather prediction modeling that is um, a next generation um, precision uh, forecasting capability. Uh, and if we can get that uh, data back, it's going to be valuable to many different industries. Um, so Earth observation data, Earth weather is interesting. There's also space weather, but we could talk about that later. So, and as um, we see components that have scaled, there are small components companies. We have one we invested in called OrbitFab, and they're basically creating a port for a spacecraft that allows you to refuel, uh, to add new propellant, while you're in orbit. And when you're flying a spacecraft, right now the limiting factor is the amount of propellant you carry is determines the lifetime of the spacecraft. And these are expensive spacecraft. So if there's this ability to refuel in space, um, it extends those lifetimes and extends the mission uh, for, for any satellite that can refuel in space. So these are kind of interesting opportunities and uh, uh, what we're seeing in the industry, some of what we're seeing right now. Great. Uh, maybe if you could uh, give us a, a little bit of overview of space weather. It, it sounds like a very interesting piece based on what we talked about, uh, that space and its broader implications for the economy. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, space weather is something that my company, Explore, is working on uh, with a capability for NOAA, our National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They understand the value of getting um, measurements of the activity occurring at the sun um, because the sun has coronal mass ejections that are these particles that shoot toward the earth and can basically fry our infrastructure. And they have studied this. Um, we had uh, what's called a Carrington event, the Carrington event, or referred to as the Carrington event um, in 1869. And it, at the time, the technology that existed on the earth was telecommunications. And it stifled that capability for, by, because these ejections hit the earth and um, our systems were disabled. So imagine today with all of our connected devices, if we had uh, some, a similar event hitting the earth and we were unprepared, we had no forewarning, and we couldn't disconnect uh, from the electrical grid. Well, what Explorer is doing is um, flying um, 
our spacecraft to the uh, L1 destination, which is uh, a gravitational point where we can hover uh, between, midway between the Earth and the Sun. And it allows us to have a solar observatory for getting back this solar weather and bringing back this, uh, performing this monitoring so that we can bring um, data back and have early warning, an early warning system to say we could have a coronal mass ejection coming to the Earth and some, we call it a, a solar weather event. So um, Lloyd's of London had predicted that if what nearly happened, the Carrington event in 1869 was nearly replicated in 2017, and they predicted that had this impact hit the Earth, it would have caused $2.6 trillion in damage and had our infrastructure down for um, about eight years. And if you can imagine the inability to turn on your water, to use your devices, to use a phone, um, what does this mean for our life on Earth? Um, it's wonderful to know that our government is thinking ahead and that, especially in these trying times that we're living in with the pandemic, you couldn't imagine something worse. Well, this could be worse, um, but they're thinking ahead, you know, so they're investing in advanced weather prediction and uh, thankfully, uh, my, my company Explore is uh, going to be working on that for them. Fascinating stuff, Lisa. Uh, Amir, your thoughts on areas that are uh, attracting uh, interesting uh, amounts of investment and in perhaps even maybe you can discuss some of the, the I don't know if real estate is the right uh, you know verbiage to use for this, but things that you're looking at with your firm. Yeah, real estate is the right verbiage. Um, and by the way, I love what Explorer is doing. Um, and, uh, and that Lagrange point satellite is, is just one, but I like to think about that one as, a, as the uh, – wave buoys that are mid-ocean. You know, had we known about the uh, the tsunami that hit Bandache, then, you know, many, many lives could have been saved. And essentially, that's what Explorer is building here. It's this, it's this buoy between the sun and us that gives us advance warning that one of these um, solar bursts are on its way in and that we can shut everything down that needs to be shut down to avoid uh, all the voltage jumps that damage equipment and, uh, and and could save that. So there's a clear case there for the insurers to invest. And so it's interesting both from a technological perspective, but also from the investment perspective. And so, um, you know, you asked about the areas that are attracting investment. Well, investors are crazy about data. And I have a love-hate relationship with data because on one hand, it's a great investment. On the other hand, it's not really space. So Lisa talked about some of the things that we see with um, you know, with satellites that are Earth observing, then there's the question of what do we do with that information? And so there are applications that are being developed, apps and and uh, and desktop applications for agriculture, precision ag agriculture. So using satellite data to tell us where we should water, what we should cover, how we, you know, what nutrients should be given. Um, Earth observing satellites that help with disaster prediction and management. Um, satellite data that's used for financial and military intelligence. So for example, um, the CIA or hedge funds can look and see what the volume of oil is in ships off of the largest ports in the world. And one, what should the um, commodity value be of the oil? And two, is somebody manipulating prices of oil by keeping things offshore and not bringing stock to port. 
So uh, interesting applications there. And then, of course, uh, military persistence, uh, navigation tech. So there's a lot that can be done with space data. But for me as a space purist, it's a little bit frustrating because that's not real space investment. What Lisa talked about, that they're investing in uh, other companies that do on-orbit satellite servicing or exploration technologies, uh, and of course, for me, human spaceflight and in-space real estate, that's core space, and that's what I'm excited to see expanding. And on that front, there's, of course, the human spaceflight and in-space manufacturing and research sectors. So on the human spaceflight side, we've got professional astronauts and private astronauts, where professional astronauts are those who are sent up by countries who are career astronauts, and private astronauts are either ultra-high net worths or corporate-sponsored uh, astronauts who are going to space. And so if you look at the drivers for human spaceflight, first of all, um, there are lunar and Mars missions that are being developed by countries and by organizations like SpaceX. And they're creating their own demand, at the same time building up the demand for a platform in low Earth orbit. And for those who don't know low Earth orbit, um, at least where ISS orbits is about 250 miles up from Earth. So not very far away. Uh, it's about nine minute rocket ride to get to that altitude as Terry knows, and then a few more hours to uh, connect to ISS. And that low Earth orbit platform, the International Space Station, which Axiom Space is now building the successor that will be replacing it, is where those countries and those corporations will test out astronauts, uh, train them for long duration, do isolation studies, um, do studies on how space affects the human body. And it's also the place where technologies are matured. So before sending somebody off on a long duration lunar mission or on a Mars mission, it's critical to make sure that a system like environmental control and life support or guidance, navigation and control or communications works flawlessly and for a long duration so we can send people out safely. And then the other thing that's driving human spaceflight growth is that more countries want to join the family of spacefaring nations. So today, the five agencies that own the International Space Station, which is the U.S., Russia, Japan, Canada, and the European Space Agency, represent about 20 countries. And there are all these other countries that want to join that family. So all that's driving a higher demand for human spaceflight and its related services. And then the other side uh, that's attracting investors is manufacturing and research. There are organizations, including on the pharmaceutical side, Eli Lilly and Merck, that are in space developing drugs and studying metabolic processes in a way that can't be done on Earth. And so examples of things they do in space is they'll test uh, the behavior of a virus or of human cells and understand what happens when you take gravity out of the picture. How do things work differently? And from that, deduce what's going on, what is affecting virulence, what's affecting the efficacy of a particular drug, and improving drugs that way. Another area is fiber optics. So uh, there are six companies right now that are vying to produce new types of fiber optics in space that can transmit infrared signal. Fiber optics on Earth are not pure enough to transmit that low energy side of the spectrum, uh, requiring repeaters and all sorts of other technologies. So fiber optics produced in space are, are a big business case, as are exotic metals and exotic woven materials made out of uh, carbon fiber and carbon nanotubes and things like that, and then additive manufacturing of those types of combined materials. So all of this provides um, in-space research and manufacturing 
not for use in space. The big markets are those things developed in space for use by billions of people on Earth. And so space is offering us an opportunity to create new technologies and new uh, businesses of manufacturing for very large terrestrial markets. Uh, and that is something that is interesting to many large companies like Dow and Corning and 3M and Siemens and all sorts of other large new tech producers and pharma producers, because if there is something they can produce on Earth that simply can't be produced on, uh, in space, that can't be produced on Earth, that's a huge competitive advantage to them. Thanks, Mayor. A lot of fascinating areas there, including you mentioned the, the, the work that's going on, the biomedical and life science. It's, it's interesting to see uh, uh, what, what organizations are, are, are working on that and pulling out things that might be effective uh, and useful here, um, here on, the, on the ground. Uh, Terry, your thoughts. Uh, you've seen it uh, up uh, personally and up and close. Where, where do you see some uh, areas uh, around the space industry that are ex attracting uh, interesting amounts of investment? Yeah, there's so many different areas here. Uh, I'll just piggyback on Amir. One of the interesting biomedical research areas is 3D printed organs. Um, there's certain human organs like kidneys and so on that you can actually grow the tissue in space and weightlessness, and it grows more efficiently and larger than you can on Earth. So that's a, if that market ever develops, it could potentially be really big. Um, and I'll just say, I think somebody needs to mute. I just heard some pencils banging and stuff. Um, Should be said now. Okay. So I think 3D printed organs, and there's other manufacturing uh, capabilities that are really interesting in zero-G. Uh, I think the application side of things, Lisa talked about hyperspectral imaging. There's a lot of uses for that data. Um, if you know what's happening with an economy or uh, politics or farming or, you know, activity on Earth can be monitored from space and the, the rise of small satellites and small sensors and small computers that have lower power demands have allowed a lot of that data to, to, to come from space, which is, which is pretty amazing. Um, the Starlink satellite, and there's a few other satellite constellations, is very interesting in that they can provide broadband globally, but they also present a really, really significant danger, frankly, to our access to orbit because we're putting up tens of thousands of these small satellites into low Earth orbit, and when they start running into each other, which will eventually inevitably happen, uh, there's something called a Kessler syndrome. And if you saw the movie Gravity a few years ago, you saw that um, dramatized. And it's actually not some theoretical problem. Uh, the Chinese decided to do a anti-satellite weapons test back in 2007. And that debris is still in space. In fact, when I was commander of the space station, years and years and years later, I had to maneuver it to avoid this debris from that test. And so space debris is the gift that keeps on giving. It stays there forever. And then, you know, one satellite explosion turns into a thousand little pieces. And when they hit other satellites, it turns into more pieces. And you can quickly have a situation where you can't have access to orbit. And Lisa was talking before about that event in 1869. Well, if that happens in 2020, it'll make COVID look like nothing. I mean, be, you know, take out low Earth orbit. So um, I think that's an interesting opportunity, but it's also an amazing challenge. We, we have to make sure we're smart about putting these massive numbers of satellites. Because if 99% of them work, that means 1% of them don't, and you might have 
you know, a hundred or hundreds of these dead satellites zooming around in low Earth orbit. And just because it's a little bit higher, lower, a different orbit than, let's say, the space station, when there's a collision, those pieces and parts go shooting out and they change the orbit pretty dramatically. So um, our uh, India last year did a military anti-satellite weapons test. Not it was a it was ill-advised to say the least, and and now there's a big cloud of debris that they've created in low Earth orbit. So I think the prevalence of satellites there gives us lots of opportunity, but the risk is pretty high, and that and that's that's never talked about. And I think that's something that um, we need to be aware of. You know, eyes wide open as we as we move into this new space era that we're going into. No. Can I mention, uh, Terry, your your comment on space debris is so important because this is valuable material that's flying around, and yet there really isn't a strategy that, that we've seen anyway for uh, a viable uh, business plan that's going to make money off of space junk. <laughs> I'm looking for one. You know, we've seen a lot of different approaches, but as you mentioned, uh, the problem as well is that they're orbiting, they orbit for a long time, and that when, by the time we go to maybe uh, gather these, these this debris, it can disintegrate when it's, you're trying to um, gather it. So that causes more. It, it just expounds the problem. Um, yeah, the different and it's hard structure. to monetize yeah. them. Right, right. right. Because, because there's nobody... There's no responsible organization that's going to underwrite it or insure it, or you can't just hire a lawyer to sue the company that caused this problem because uh, th that just doesn't exist. So it's going to lead to interesting legal problems, but the bigger issue is the dependence that we have on space, especially developed nations, is uh, absolute. We wouldn't be having this call right now. We couldn't do this podcast without space. And so imagine taking that away or significantly hindering it. It would really impact all of humanity in a serious way. And I'm, and I'm not being dramatic. It's just it's something that we need to think about. And unfortunately, there's I think we could have innovation and some smart companies could develop around a business plan of how to clean up space and how to make this not a problem. But there's nobody paying for it. And that's it's kind of like climate change. We know we need to reduce carbon but who's going to pay for that? And we have a similar problem in space. It's this uh, moral hazard where we're all assuming the risk, but we're, but you know, we're not the ones that started the problem. Uh, thanks, uh, Terry and Lisa on that. Uh, let, let's switch gears a little bit here. Uh, Lisa, let's look at diligence. You know, when you're looking at companies and, and you're working with other family offices that are are looking at opportunities in the space industry. What you know, what kind of qualities and and, and proof points are you looking at uh, when you're when you're analyzing these types of industries and these types of companies? Yeah, well, Hemisphere Ventures was established as our family office, and when we were investing on our own without uh, a team, we don't have a team. Um, we're not a huge family office. We were on the ground visiting uh, space agent, space uh, professionals. We were visiting startups. We were in the labs. We were in the meeting the engineers, and and we ended up building a whole network of domain experts uh, around the world that can help us with our uh, deal flow and diligence. And I think that was really 
uh, it was an evolution um, that most people don't have uh, the time or resources to do, but it was something that, that you know, our interests and passion took us in this direction. And so unwittingly, we created this, this wonderful network of, of professionals and uh, we're investing in the space industry based on diligence that uh, where we could see it, touch it, feel it, and understand that based on our, our own um, skills as strategists, uh, understand a business plan that, that made sense and a company that seemed to have all the puzzle pieces in place to, to make an investment. And uh, when we started investing with um, maybe doing syndicates and running a fund, of course, we had to have even more layers of, of diligence. And that's when we started meeting other um, small uh, VC firms that were specifically focused on space. And so they were added to our network as well for, for another layer of diligence. Um, but when we assess a company, it's not just about the technology. Interestingly, we certainly need to know that we're investing in these deep technologies. And you know, when we Hemisphere invested in, in Axiom, and the, they had come to us saying, you know, this is our early stage company, and what do you think? And can we show you what we do? And so what was wonderful about that is we were learning about the team, meeting the team. Um, and of course, the history of Axiom is stellar because you have Mike Suffordini, who ran the International Space Station for over a decade, leading uh, this new company. And they also, um, when they brought us to, uh, to visit, we were at the SC Johnson Space Center, we were at NBL, the National Buoyancy Lab, uh, basically learning how they support and ensure and safety on the International Space Station today. So really having an experiential side of diligence is a part of what Hemisphere does. Um, and we, so, th so that we know for ourselves that, you know, this, this company can do what it says, especially for a space investment that's going to be uh, with Axiom, um, their record for human safety um, is uh, inherent in the company because not just Mike Suffordini, but their co-founder, Cam Gaffarian, who ran SGT that basically um, trained all of our astronauts and set up all the human safety measures for uh, human space flight, um, you really don't get a better opportunity than to find you know, a founding partner like that. So um, the analysis part of, um, uh, for us is uh, the experts that we have that can add that other layer of diligence um, and the network we turn to for that. But then we're very hands-on as strategists. And so uh, Hemisphere has invested in over 200 companies since 2014. And part of our learning from doing 200 investments, some, some more passive, some uh, were very active and involved with the companies, uh, we started to see patterns forming in different sectors and started to get an understanding of what uh, is required to specifically invest in a space company because it is quite different from other investments. There are other um, 
things to take in mind other than the team, the business model, you know, can they get funded? There are avenues like the, the regulatory perspective. How will they be able to um, handle the, the, if there's a political uh, aspect to the business? But on the regulatory side, you know, we have uh, budgets that are the, um, that, that affect these businesses because uh, a lot of what's accelerating space investment is our interest for, in government uh, transitioning to commercial space. So we have a proof point for us is, is the, the company we're looking at um, engaging with government? And when they are, are they winning contracts with government customers? And do they have multiple government customers? So it, it's kind of ironic that, you know, 10 years ago, if you had asked me, would I want to invest in a company that was supported by the government, I would have thought, well, no, I don't, I don't see that being um, an opportunity. But today it is because there's a new space race happening. Our government wants to be um, dominant and the dominant player in the space industry, and they're putting the dollars behind it. So um, I'm involved in the regulatory side, um, not just as the founder of a company that's in the space sector, but also to make sure that the companies that we're investing in have good representation and a good plan um, to be involved with the, the uh, non-dilutive funding dollars that are out there um, from different agencies that are seeking um, innovative technologies to advance the industry. And are these companies able to win those awards and be funded? And once they do, uh, what is the outcome from that? It's typically larger contracts and larger awards, which means more dil dilutive funding and a less need from for investor dollars. So it's really proving the value to investors when you can find companies like that. Great. Thanks, Lisa. Amir, you know, going to some of the comments that you made earlier and, and Lisa as well in terms of that uh, transition uh, from government to commercial space, do you see space companies benefiting from this kind of transition and, and these types of trends? I do, yeah. And before I answer that, I just want to mention there was a silver lining to this um, space debris conversation earlier. Um, so the Air Force uh, Missile Command and other organizations and even startups are increasing the resolution by which we can track space debris. So uh, just from the standpoint of knowing you know what and where it is that that's something that's going up over time and it also is opening opportunities for startups to develop new technologies in that area so from the investor perspective there is this huge market um or say from the entrepreneur's perspective there's a huge market that uh, insurers and satellite operators are happy to invest in and uh, and that's a realm that's getting increasing interest so there are literally dozens of companies out there right now that are looking at, uh, at debris mitigation and debris cleanup technologies um, there's also quite a bit of self-regulation that's happening so spacex uh, the new starlink constellation that they're putting up those small satellites have uh, the ability to deorbit themselves that's something that many satellites in the past did not sufficiently have uh, on their systems, and so there's this uh, adoption of, of responsibility because companies understand that if they go and muck up low Earth orbit, they're not going to be able to operate their, uh, themselves, and the cascade effect that Terry described is going to affect their own satellites. So we're seeing some good self-regulation there. 
Um, and, and so I just wanted to bring bring it up that it's it's not all doom and gloom. There, you know, there's uh, uh, control measures being put in both on the uh, regulation side, but also technologically. So, Eddie, in terms of your question about the transition from government to commercial space. Um, First of all, it's economically driven. Uh, secondarily, it's technologically driven. On the economical side, uh, economic side, private companies are uh, more nimble than space. Uh, fewer layers of, of committees, different types of acquisition strategies, and they are profit-driven. So they find solutions that are uh, more cost-effective than what governments tend to find, where governments are more focused on uh, redundancy and safety to the nth degree. Um, commercial companies are figuring out how to make something work how to make it have a business case, how to make it operate for the long term safely. Um, an example, you know, our own example, Axiom Space, we're building the new space station uh, at greater capability than ISS, but at one thirtieth the cost. Now, granted, we have the advantage of 20 years of ISS experience uh, behind us, and, so, um, and, and so, so that helps us. But in any case, we operate as a uh, commercial company the way we do our acquisition and the way we operate and the standards we select. You know, we don't build everything to space standard. So for example, inside the pressurized volume of our station, we may employ standards like DOT and ASC. Not everything has to be space standard. So, you know, if we need a quick disconnect hose to connect liquid between two systems, we don't need a hose that can operate in the vacuum of space that costs $400,000 for a four foot length. We can use a more typical quick disconnect hose that would cost $50 and would be just as reliable. So things like that. Um, also, there's a lot of help now for private companies from space agencies. So SpaceX got a great deal of its funding and uh, early customership from, uh, from NASA. And without NASA, SpaceX couldn't be what it, what it is today. Um, just the same, Axiom is benefiting hugely from NASA and the ISS partners in that NASA gave us a $140 million contract to um, help us with the development of our station. Now, that's a small part of our whole station's construction, but at the early part of a company, it's very important to us. And, uh, and also those space agencies are important customers. So that's on the economic drive for the transition from government to commercial. On the technological side, and this is a good segue from, you know, how we're building the space station at 130th the cost, is that the space agencies have de-risked Earth's orbit. So we don't have to incur the R&D costs associated with primary research. We don't have to develop tools. We don't have to develop techniques. We don't have to develop the manufacturing knowledge base. We can go to companies like Thales-Alenia Space or Boeing that built the hulls and other parts of the International Space Station and all the tooling is there and the personnel is there and the testing and materials verification is there. That in itself are uh, tens of billions of dollars that we just don't have to spend because we are the legacy beneficiaries of everything that, that's been done um, in that area. So those, those are really the main factors that are supporting this, uh, this transition. The last is that governments cannot do the exploration further afield to the moon and to Mars and still do the operations in low Earth orbit. They just don't have the budget to do both. So they have to get out from under the ownership of ISS, which today just the maintenance of ISS costs $2 billion per year. And they have to free up that money to go and do the de-risking of the new final frontier. And that leaves uh, low Earth orbit to us and, and the commercial organizations that are doing um, the, uh, the satellite side, and for us, that it's doing the, the real estate in space. So, Amir, uh, what are some non-U.S. players in the, in, in the space 
um, uh, industry focusing on. And, 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 you know, there are some, uh, there's discussion around non-U.S. investors making investments in U.S. space. Any geopolitical implications uh, on either of those ends? Uh, not huge geopolitical implications because you don't see many, uh, co- you know, investors coming from China, say, into the U.S. or from Iran into the U.S. Uh, or, or vice versa. Uh, but I can tell you a little bit about who are the non-U.S. investors investing in space in their own countries. A few examples. One is the government of Luxembourg. So they had or have their Space Resources Initiative where it was very important to them as a company with a rich mining um, legacy to get into mining in space. So they approached the problem a little bit early, technologically speaking, maybe maybe a decade early. And so they've been looking at, uh, at different companies that are developing asteroid mining technologies and things like that. There are other investors like Seraphim Capital. So Seraphim is an investment uh, company that is funded by a combination of Airbus, Telespacio, Comdev, um, Avanti Communications, and they are um, looking to invest in not only space companies, but other companies in Europe that, that are space supporting. And so uh, that's filling in a little bit of the void. Uh, there really is a dearth of investment, uh, of, of space investment in Europe and uh, in Russia, in space companies, uh, really, we're lucky to be here in the U.S. Both from the entrepreneur standpoint and from the investment standpoint, this is really where the the, the startup activity is centered. Um, I would like to say a word about who the um, you know what the makeup is of the investment players, and 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 really it, it spans the spectrum. So VCs make up about half of space investment. Uh, angels make up about a quarter of the investment, and then the combination of banks, private equities, and corporate venture arms also make up about uh, a quarter of space investment. So, so one half VC, one half angels, one half some of the institutional investors. The group that's now becoming prominent in space investing, which is particularly exciting, um, are our family offices and sovereign wealth. And that's because they have the financial capacity to make many large primary and follow-on investments, and because they have the infrastructure and agility to explore new sectors. And that's where we might start seeing real foreign investment into U.S. space companies. So when you have organizations like Temasek and Mubadala and uh, and SoftBank Vision Fund, which has now had somewhat of a fall from grace, but they have a lot of Saudi and Japanese money in them, they are looking to invest in U.S. space companies. And so we'll see some some of that. And uh, so long as everyone does their CFIUS filings, there, there's not really a, a problem from a geopolitical standpoint with, with that funding coming in. Uh, last point is that family offices have the extra advantage, whether they're outside the U.S. or in the U.S., of investing their own money. So they're not chained down by a prospectus they've given to LPs or by the rule that the fund has to go by. They have a little bit more um, spiel in you know, what types of investments they, they get to make. Um, i just like to point out that our company, Axiom Space, is nearing the close of its $100 million Series B round, and our lead investor is a family office, and that's something that 10, 15 years ago, there's no way that would have happened. So it's gone from a place where space is a circumspect investment for most investors to a place where most major investors and now family offices and sovereign wealth funds see space as an imperative part of their portfolio.
So that's an interesting uh, picture of how things have evolved over the last decade. Can I add some stuff to that, Eddie? Yeah, sure. When you look at the international landscape, there's the component of investing in U.S. companies, which is interesting and important. But if, if you look at the overall space um, landscape, things have changed. Yeah, you can't overstate how much things have changed in just the last few years because for a decade or decades, Russia was kind of the dominant launch country. Um, Europe had a significant launch capability and the American government, Atlas and Delta was a big part of that. And because of SpaceX, basically, and soon to be Blue Origin and a few other companies, that the global launch industry has been completely turned on its head. Um, The Russians have lost a lot of lead, if you will, in space. Um, And the rise of China in space also can't be overstated because in America, we've had the Space 2.0, this new space revolution. And China is trying to copy that very much so. Um, and there's a lot of quote unquote, you know, commercial Chinese companies. Of course, they're just supported by the government. So they're not truly commercial, but they are providing space services and launch services at vastly reduced pricing. And so what happened with solar panels, they're also trying to do with the launch industry. They're trying to just lower the price so much that it wipes out all the competition and then they'll have it. So there's a real significant competition coming from China now. It used to come from Russia. That has changed and it's coming from China. Uh, So that's a big global dynamic uh, that has changed. And the European space or the European launch industry is is something that's gone away quite a bit. Um, India has been rising and uh, there's a few companies. Amir mentioned Luxembourg, which is really interesting for the space mining and and startup community. But the UAE, believe it or not, the United Arab Emirates has a pretty strong uh, space program. In fact, they're launching a probe to to Mars uh, this month, hopefully. And so the global dynamics have really changed a lot. And what you may think you know about, you know, this country and that country in space is changing. Um, It's largely because of SpaceX and Blue Origin and others, and China is very close on their heels. So uh, thanks, Terry. I mean, a a follow-up in a related area, I mean, you grew up in the Air Force, you know, who was traditionally the owner of the, the space domain in, in government, and, you know, things have certainly changed. You know, we have spaceforce.mil. Uh, you know, what are your, your thoughts on, on, on that, you know, that organization and the, the future of NASA in general? So, so Space Force is a really interesting subject. Um, I've written about it. I spoke about it. I was speaking at the White House National Space Council the day that President Trump announced there would be a Space Force. Um, the military operates in what's called multi-domain warfare. Uh, There's obviously air, land, and sea, and there's also space now, and there's also cyber. So there's really five domains. So if there's a conflict, heaven forbid, um, we're going to bring all types of forces from those five agencies. But the air, land, and sea forces all do what's called organized, train, and equip in the Air Force, Army, and Navy but space and cyber has been distributed amongst the Air Force, Army, and Navy. And so a lot of people kind of made fun and laughed and, you know, we're just going to have stormtroopers in space, which, of course, is not the case at all. Um, from my perspective, it made a lot of sense just from an organizational uh, uh, plan for the DOD to have space forces organized in their own organization. Um, I also think that we should have a cyber force because, Right now, the Air Force has a cyber command, the Army has a cyber command, and the Navy has a cyber command. So 
um, there's a lot of inefficiencies. You know, Air Force Space Command was kind of the main military space organization, which, by the way, is bigger than NASA. So to, we're not starting a military space force. We're just continuing a military space force that we've had for the last 50 years. Uh, we're just hopefully if they, if we do this smartly, we could in theory, make it more efficient. And uh, I think we should also be doing the same thing with cyber forces, putting them in one organization to better organize training and equip. Thanks, Jerry. And then in, in terms of, uh, it, I, I have to ask this, what, what are your thoughts on uh, a manned Mars mission by 2030? Are we in the so, Yes, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, but there's one thing, I've, I've, I've had a chance to go to the Hill, you know, the House and Senate, and to the White House several times and, and talk about space policy. And I have one, one message every time I go there. And it's not about the rocket science, it's about the political science. And uh, unfortunately, you know, our founding fathers gave us this thing called elections and congressional districts, right? So our national space policy is very much oftentimes focused on what can I do for my home district? And I don't really like the last guy who was in office, so I want to change his policy. And we've been seeing this ever since the 90s, um, really with the Clinton administration is when this hyper-partisan era began. And so the next administration wants to cancel what the last administration does. And that's not a very efficient way to have a space program, something that's going to take 10 or 20 years. Um, the Chinese don't have to worry about that. You know, they don't have, <laughs> they don't have to worry about the last guy because the last guy was a member of the same party as the current guy. So they can have a, a long-term, relatively unwavering plan, uh, whereas in America, we, we are, we're really hamstrung by our political process. My hope is, and, and one of the foundations for any space program is that you have to have money. You can't do space on the cheap. It's, it's expensive, and um, we have this guy named Jeff Bezos who's got some spare change you know, in his couch that can actually – fund at a significant level a program that lasts for a long time. So until we figure out how to keep a bipartisan, multi-administration program going, there's not going to be a government uh, Mars program because it's going to take time and money to get there. Um, but, you know, gentlemen like Jeff Bezos and other private companies may be able to change that. But try, in my own personal view, 2030 is too soon. It took us nine years <laughs> From, no, it took us a decade from when we started Commercial Crew to when we finally launched two people into Earth orbit, which, of course, John Glenn did 60 years ago. That, that one simple act took us 10 years, and so there's no way we're going to be at Mars in less than 10 years, especially with this new wave of debt that the federal government has. Thanks, Jerry. And then, Lisa, to close this off, you know, if family offices wanted to get started in, in, in space uh, investing, where do they go for resources and, and potential support networks of like-minded families? Oh, great question. There's, there's a lot of, of access to uh, learning about the industry, certainly a lot of podcasts that are being done right now that we're all at home, and um, Hemisphere is a great resource for connecting folks to things uh, to help them learn about the sector. Um, we, I think that support networks, it, it depends on what the family office, what kind of time they want to um, spend to learn about the industry. 
but um, I'm often mentoring family offices to share what I know with them um, because we are a bit of an inside track uh, family office because we've been involved for so long. Uh, and I can uh, help them learn about um, the deals that, that we're working on. We, we are, um, uh, as I mentioned, investors in Axiom. So for smaller investors, um, there's a pathway there. Um, and we have other investment opportunities and funds that we work with, like Starbridge Venture Capital, that uh, is a space-focused uh, fund. So I can share those resources with uh, investors. Um, there are books uh, out there, a new one that Robert Jacobson wrote called Space is Open for Business. And it's an interesting read because it's kind of a walk through all the players in the industry and um, who the VCs are that have invested previously. And um, I think that it's, it's a good way to get your your thoughts around the industry. Um, and separately, if people want to learn and have a deep dive, they could be involved even with International Space University, which has an executive space course every year. And uh, I teach at that, and that's coming up in October. Well, listen, uh, thank you, Lisa, uh, Terry, and Amir. I really appreciate your thoughtful insights today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with our guests or have any other questions, do send us an email to uh, family office at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast and much, much more in your inbox and learn about how we help family offices in general. That website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. And if you liked it, leave us a review. Thank you again to our panel and thank you all of you. Uh, for joining us. Well, that's it for today. Check back for a new podcast in two weeks.
This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.